0: Good morning. I'm Joe Collins and want to welcome you to See Me Church. It is great to be together this morning. I do want to uh, thank the song leaders for such a great job during the worship today. I mean, the song, the music was beautiful. Uh, It was uh, inspiring. Like Ivan said, I do feel like I'm in the zone now. I also want to uh, thank everyone on on behalf of the Eurasian Mission uh, Fund. Uh, I know that uh, the, the the offering you give today is is uh, extremely important to the success of the mission work over in Eurasia, and I know the brothers there and the churches and the disciples are forever uh, indebted to you for your generosity. So thank you so much for uh, your giving. Uh, as you know, we're going to be uh, uh, continuing our series called uh, uh, "Following Jesus," hashtag Jesus Worth Following, and uh, we are looking we're following Jesus through the the Gospel of Mark. So there was this guy, and he was sitting outside uh, of his local pub one day, and he was enjoying a pint of beer and feeling good about himself. And when all of a sudden, a a nun sat down at his table and started started speaking to him about the evils of alcohol. You should be ashamed of yourself, young man. Drinking is a sin. Alcohol is the blood of the devil, she said. Annoyed, the man replied, what do you know about drinking? Have you ever even had a drink? Well, uh, no, of course not, said the nun. So how can you be sure that what you're saying is right? Listen, the man said, let me buy you a drink. And if you still think after you drink that, after you drink it, that uh, alcohol is evil, I will give it up for life. The nun said, well, I appreciate the offer, but, but how could I do that? I'm a nun and people seeing me outside in a public place would be, would be just so inappropriate. And the guy says, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll tell the barman to put your drink in a teacup so no one will know. So the nun thought about it for a minute and decided, okay, I'll try. So the man went inside and he ordered another pint for himself. And then he ordered a triple vodka on the rocks. And, uh, and he leaned forward over to the barman and he whispered, and uh, could you put the vodka in a teacup? The bartender looked at him and said, oh, no, it's not that drunk nun again, is it? You know, unlike the nun, God is a good God. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 3. We're going to read verses 20 to 22. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Speak to me through the church this morning. Help us to be inspired by the, the message this morning and inspired by what we see in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were unable to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. You know, we have our map here on our screen. And as you can, uh, as we've done every week, it's our simple overview of the of the land of Palestine. And And because we're following Jesus wherever he went in the book of Mark, well, this is a map is helping us to see where Jesus was. And, and if you remember last week, Jesus had, had withdrawn to an area near the uh, uh, Sea of Galilee in a hillside somewhere, probably up around Capernaum, Bethsaida, somewhere in there. But it was a, a more quiet place where he, could, uh, where he got together his, his uh, uh, closest uh, associates, the 12 disciples, and, and, and appointed them apostles to be his official messengers. And then he... He gave them the charge to go out and, uh, and to uh, preach the word. And after some time, he returned to Capernaum, probably, and, and probably to Peter's house. Now, the second image you have is a modern-day picture of the city of Capernaum, or the ruins of the city. And right there in the middle, you see a, a white rectangular structure. That's, a, uh, that's what we believe to be the, the, the remains of a synagogue uh, that sit on top of the original synagogue, which would have been the synagogue in the time of Christ. And then just above that, you see that octagonal shaped building that is believed to be the remains of a church that was built over the remains of Peter's actual house. And so this is probably where Jesus returned to after uh, appointing those 12 men to be his apostles. And he returns to the house of Peter because it was his sort of home away from home, his home base there in Capernaum. And it's here he is when it says he entered a house and again, a crowd gathered. Now, you guys may remember from our series that Jesus' ministry, you know, really began with a bang. He taught right there in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he taught with authority in such a way that really stunned people. It really stopped people in their tracks. On top of that, he healed a man possessed by a demon, a demoniac. Shortly after that, he went home to Peter's house, and that evening he healed all kinds of people from all over the town. And then the next day he went out on a Preaching to her throughout the land of Galilee. And while he was out preaching, he cleansed the leper, healed the paralytic. He even got into some debates with the, the teachers of the law and, and Pharisees and others, and scribes and other religious leaders in the in, in among the people of Israel. And he bested them when it came to subjects like forgiveness and fasting and the Sabbath. He was able to uh, uh, show the the flaws in their in their religious in, in their in their thinking and in their in their uh, understanding of those those important concepts. And then to make matters worse, he even called a sinner, a man named Levi, who was a tax collector, who also called Matthew, to become one of his followers. Now, overall, the crowds were very positive when it came to Jesus. The, the public loved him, but the religious establishment, well, they were not uh, uh, amused by him. And and ultimately, they they conspired to kill him. I mean, they really turned against him. And so that's when Jesus withdrew to the hillsides up uh, around the Sea of Galilee, and he, he called these 12 uh, disciples to become his apostles, his official messengers. And after a time away and letting, letting some of the uh, uh, um, you know, emotions uh, subside uh, about him and his ministry, he returned to Capernaum into Peter's house. And there a large reception of people were there to meet him. And I like to think of this as like a wedding reception or, or, a, or a celebration after a, a big promotion, right? And Jesus came back in and people heard he was coming and they threw a big party for him. And there, in the house and the place was so crowded that there wasn't even enough food for anyone to, for the disciples or for Jesus to eat. All the, all the guests ate the food. And I love that that's actually mentioned in the gospel because that's not something common in ancient literature to put a detail like that in. And that helps me uh, uh, really picture the scene. It helps it be, become more real to me. And it also helps me know that, that this wasn't made up because details like that just wouldn't have been inserted into a, uh, into a text at that time. And, and, and so we really get the sense that this is an eyewitness uh, account or at least somebody's memory of the event. But nonetheless, there was a big party going on. People were eating all the food. And at the same time, uh, Jesus' family, now whether they lived in Capernaum at this time, which they might have, or whether they were still in Nazareth, we don't know. But somehow, word of mouth traveled and, and uh, got back to the family. Now, if they're in Nazareth, it was only a, a few miles away, 10, 12, 15 miles away. And his family left immediately to come, and the Bible says to take charge of him. The word in the Greek is karat isai. And it literally means to arrest him. Because, see, they thought he had gone crazy. I mean, it was one thing to go around and teach, and it was another thing even to perform some miracles. But, whoa, you go ahead and get 12 guys, and now you've got a little a posse around you. Well, now something's going wrong, right? Now we got a little cult leader occurring here. And his family was very, very concerned. No, that's not why they were concerned. They were really concerned because Jesus had upset the religious establishment. He had upset religious leaders. And it was, it was known, word had got out, that they were out to get him. And so probably to protect him and even the, and to protect their family name, they left to go take charge of him because they were probably afraid of what the religious leaders might do to him. Killing him was not totally out of the question, but that would have been a hard thing to do at this point in time, especially. But it was hard because the Romans were the only people that could execute someone. They were the, the power over the land. But, it, but, but the, 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 the religious leaders could do a lot of damage. They could really ruin his reputation, they could ruin the reputation of the family. And so the family wanted to get there before the legal experts, the teachers of the law, could publicly humiliate him and them. Unfortunately, we read this account, according to Mark, the teachers of law from Jerusalem had gotten there first, and they were already publicly discrediting him. They were claiming that he was demon-possessed. Now, I want to point out here that the Gospel of Matthew has a parallel account of this story. And Matthew adds some information for us. He tells us that it was during this reception that some people brought another demoniac, another possessed person, to Jesus, whom he healed. And so it makes the scene all the more poignant when Jesus casts out a demon from a demoniac, and the religious leaders, these teachers of the law, are outside accusing him of being demon-possessed himself, and that's how he had the power to cast out demons. It was as if they had this belief that, you know, Jesus being demon-possessed must have been possessed by a greater power, a greater demon than these other demons, and so he had the ability to cast them out. You know, I want to point out, I want to make a point here, and that is <clears throat> that, that, was a, that um, people who object... To Jesus, often resort to what I like to call first-level reasoning. Now, what is first-level reasoning? First-level reasoning is basically a oversimplistic and untested argument. It's it's uh it it's it's like a a, a, a very shallow uh a, a attack against or accusation made against the person without it really being thought through. But it's almost like a think of it more like a a soundbite. It, it may be catchy. It may, it may get people's attention. But at the end of the day, it really is shallow and untested. In economics, they have this concept. It's a, it's a fallacy. It's called the broken window fallacy. And it goes something like this. Uh, there was, there's a baker in a town, and one day a vandal breaks his window. <clears throat> and so the town gathers around, and they all get, uh, they're all upset over the fact that some vandal broke this baker's window. And they stand around and go, what a shame it is. You know, the baker's got to go buy a new window now. But then someone in the crowd will say, well, but hey, that's going to stimulate the economy. So at the end of the day, this broken window is somehow good for everyone. It's good for the economy. Now, this is a fallacy in economic thought. And the reason why it's a fallacy is because it forgets the third party. It's overly simplistic. It's untested. So, so, let me let me give you the response to the broken window fallacy. Let's say this baker's window had never gotten broken, and the baker had hundred dollars that he planned on buying a suit. Now he goes to the tailor and he pays the tailor hundred dollars for his new suit, and now he has a new suit, and the tailor is benefited the hundred dollars, and so the economy is spurred uh, because the the baker has spent money on to the t- with the tailor to get a new suit. The baker is the uh, un, is, the, is the unseen party that the broken window fallacy is talking about. You see, in the first example, people think, well, the economy was, was, was sparked because the window was broken, and so now the glassmaker has business, but they're forgetting about the tailor who could have had business. And, and, and then they're also forgetting about the baker, who now, not only is, uh, uh, is, who now has to, instead of buying a new suit, has to replace a broken window. So instead of having a new window, I mean, instead of having a window and a suit, the baker only has a window. So overall, on the economy, it's a net loss to the economy. And 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 you see this on TV shows. This kind of thinking, uh, the politicians they'll talk about how war is good for the economy and stuff, but they they completely forget that all the money spent on the war to replace all the destruction could have been spent somewhere else, and so people could have had homes and something else instead of just new homes. This is the concept of the broken window fallacy. It's a, and, and, it, and it's really geared at, undo, at undermining or undoing a first-level, uh, overly simpith, sim, simplistic, untested type of reasoning. And it is interesting to me that in Scripture, Oftentimes people who objected to Jesus, not just in scripture, but even in our day and age today, oftentimes people who object to Jesus are often first level reasoners. They catch a quick soundbite, they get a a quick little uh, statement or phrase, or they repeat something they've heard before, and they've really not thought it through thoroughly, but this is their argument. And it's usually pretty weak and pretty simplistic. If we are ever going to present the gospel to the world around us, we as Christians have got to be good at dealing with first level reasoners. And the way you get really good at dealing with first-level reasoners is by following the example example of Jesus. So let's read on. Verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. By the way, parables are great ways to deal with first-level thinkers. They force them to, to, to go to the second level of reasoning. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So the first thing Jesus does, and I love the scene, because you have this picture of Jesus in the house, and there's a crowd. It's so full. It's this great uh, reception going on there, this great party. And, and and a man gets healed, the demoniac gets gets healed of his troubles. And outside of these teachers of the law, and they're making accusations, he's doing this because he's of the devil. And, and you almost see Jesus is kind of he addresses them. The passage says he spoke to them, he called over to them. And he and he looked at the teachers of the law. and he goes, Okay, come over here. Let me let me explain something to you. Let me let me help you understand. You know that that argument, that great little phrase you're coming up with about me. It's really quite bad. It's really quite poorly thought through. Let's think about it for a minute. If Satan was casting out Satan, if demons were casting out other demons, they would be divided. That their plan, their 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 power would be would be would be muted by each other. That makes no sense for Satan to be to be casting out Satan or demons to be casting out other demons. It would it would it would ultimately divide Satan and he would, he would be already, the, the battle would already be over. So Jesus first deals with the, the accusation of him being demon-possessed. I am not demon-possessed. This is ridiculous and it's bad logic. It makes no sense for Satan to be fighting with himself. But in verse 27, he adds something new. He says, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up then he can plunder the strong man's house. Now what Jesus does is he adds some information here. He basically says, by the way, I'm not Satan. I'm actually the strong man. I'm the one greater than Satan. And I'm the one binding up the bad guy, the strong man, Satan. And I'm the one casting the demons out. And what Jesus is pointing out here, and this is really important because it's, it, it's something we really got really to hear, is that not only is he not a demoniac, not only is he not demon-possessed, or of, or of Satan, but he's a good guy. Jesus is actually the good guy in the story. I mean, think about it. Think about all the people that he was able to heal and all the lives he was able to better, whether it was casting out demons or, or healing people of their illnesses or, or giving great teaching that was helping their lives. Jesus, at the end of the day, is the good guy. Now, here's the shocking thing. They were calling him the bad guy. And, you know, people do that today. They think of Jesus as the bad guy, if you can believe it. I know, it's shocking to me. But it's true. A lot of people today view Jesus in a negative light. They think of him as someone who's taking away or, or, or who, who, who's trying to hurt them. But Jesus is helping us understand by the use of parables, by attacking these poor, overly simplistic attacks that, that, that were made against him, that he is not only not a devil, he's actually a good guy, or the good guy. Verse 28, I tell you, I, t- I truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins in every slander they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an internal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. That phrase, truly I tell you, it's a very solemn statement. It's it's a a point of, of, of importance that we need to register. It's Jesus is now getting very serious. He started out confronting the accusations that were made against him, but now he's making a very serious statement. And this statement is that God will forgive anybody of, all, anybody of any sin except for one, the sin of blasphemy. Now, I know that in, 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 in uh, <clears throat> Christian circles, the, the concept of blasphemy is a, is a scary subject, the subject of blasphemy. It's scary, and it ought to be, because it is a grave evil, and it is a, significant, and it is a serious matter. And all Christians really need to be aware of what it is. What is the sin of blasphemy so that we can do our best to avoid it, to stay as far away from it as possible? And so let me spend a minute here and let's talk about blasphemy. If we were just to look at this passage and, and, and look at it in its context as, as the way it played out, as Mark tells us, the, the, the simple answer to what is blasphemy is accusing Jesus Of evil intentions or accusing him of being evil or a devil that is the exact accusation the Pharisees made the the teachers of law made against him they accused him of being a devil and that is blasphemy that's why that's it was in that to that charge that he responded with this statement about blasphemy you know it's the same attack that the devil Satan himself made against God in the Garden of Eden. If you know the story, Satan in the form of a servant tempted Adam Adam and Eve into eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the way he did it is he suggested that God did not have good intentions. Would you really die? He gave the impression that God was not really who he said he was, that that he might not really be the good guy in the story. He was really suggesting that God was evil. That's the sin of blasphemy, because it undermines our trust, our trust in a good God. Now, I want to to, to make sure that something's very clear here. I am not talking about a one-time action. We're not talking about uh, a one-time, one point in your life where maybe you expressed something like that or felt something like that, although I would be very careful with even a one-time action. But this is really a condition of the heart over time remember the story i I started off with and retelling the whole story the beginning of jesus's ministry how it started with a bang none of that was done in a vacuum the teachers of the law the scribes and even the pharisees the religious leaders even the priests they had heard of jesus His, his his reputation had spread that's why these guys from jerusalem were there they were there because they had heard and even questioned him before, and they came to the conclusion that they didn't like what his message was, and maybe not even his method. And so they had ultimately decided that they were going to purposely discredit him. And there is where we get to blasphemy. It's a purposeful ongoing condition of of the heart it's a position someone takes that that whatever a position that someone takes that what what Jesus says is just wrong and therefore can only be attributed to satan now they got there because they were so sure of their version of what was right and wrong that they, they that that the only option they had was to call Jesus's version of right and wrong satanic they didn't like what he taught about fasting, about the Sabbath, about sinners, about, about forgiveness. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. They had they took issue with him. And as a result, because of their, their position that their righteousness and their definition and their version of righteousness was the right one, then they rejected Jesus' and not just rejected him, but then they had to discredit him and call him Satan. You know, this is an ultimate act of rebellion, and it reveals a hardness of heart that, that if it's not overcome if it's not if it's not repented of it cannot be forgiven you know today as i said before people really do doubt the intentions of jesus they read the bible and they see it in such a negative light or they hear uh, 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 passages of scripture or or christian teaching or christian speakers and they attack them as if they were the bad guy, as if, what the, as if the message that they're bringing to the world is somehow wrong and somehow evil. It is happening all over in our society today. We cannot be blind to that. We cannot ignore that reality, that there really has been a shift in the view of Christianity in the past five to 10 years even. It has gone from a generally wholesome and acceptable and appreciative per, uh, uh, perspective to, to a real suspicious and and and, and uh, um, uh, a negative outlook on Christians and Christianity and on the teachings of Jesus, even to the point to where ministers or people who call themselves ministers of churches are rejecting wide uh, you know um, um, widely accepted truths, historical and and and, and uh, accepted truths about the uh, about the teachings of Jesus. You know, we got to do something about this. We as Christians have got to turn the tide. It is a matter of life and death because, because this world is tumbling more and more and more towards this mindset that uh, 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 really into the direction of blasphemy, of of, of, think, of, of, of calling evil good and good evil and, and associating Jesus in a negative light as opposed to a positive light. And we as Christians can do something about that. We can do that with our testimony. That's why Jesus called the 12 because they had a great testimony. And they did. They went all over the, 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 the known world at the time and they shared their, their story, their, their testimony about Jesus Christ, and they, they communicated that He is a good guy and that his intentions are good. And that same message has to come from us. Now, we also have to we also have to live it. We can't be hypocritical. Hypocrites, hypocritical Christians are half the reason why people think. Intent, the, the, the Christian, uh, Jesus had bad intentions. It's why they're skeptical of Christianity. We have to practice what we preach. But what we preach is that Jesus is a good guy, that he's on the right side of the teach, uh, he's on the right side of right and not on the wrong side. Verse 31 Jesus's, then Jesus's mothers and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, "Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you." "Who are my mother and brothers?" he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, "Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, and my mother." Now remember Mark goes back to the story. <clears throat> Remember, Jesus' family had left to come and take charge of him, and they were trying to get there before the, the teachers of the law got there, but they weren't able to. Well, now they show up, and I don't know it, when they showed up, but I kind of picture it the, the, in the flow is that they got there after the fact. You know, the, the dust has settled. The, 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 the bomb has gone off. Jesus has, has blasted the, ferret, the, the teachers of the law once again. And now, I don't know if they're still there or not, but now people are just sort of sitting around in the afterglow of this reception. The house is still packed. And they come, and they, they send someone in to call him, and, and, uh, G, and they say, hey, your, your mother, brother, your family's outside looking for you. And Jesus says, who are my family? Who's my mother and brothers? And then he looked around at those seated next to him, probably the, the disciples, the 12 men that he just appointed to be his apostles, and he said, here is my family. Here are my mother and my brothers. You know, I want to point out here that Jesus is not rejecting family. In a lot of ways this is, a, is this is hyperbole I think that's happening here it's a, it's an overstatement. But it has an effect. It has a point. He doesn't want us to re, you know, he's not preaching that we reject family. But what he's saying is even if our love, even the love for our family cannot change our trust in Jesus. I want to say that again, even the love for our family and family members cannot change our trust that we put into Jesus, that he's a good guy, that his, that, that his teachings are the right ones, and they're the ones we have to hold on to. You know, it's amazing to me, I think Darren mentioned it in, his, uh, in our time of worship, he quoted Psalms. It's amazing to me how often in the scriptures God is referred to as good. God calls himself good. It's throughout the scriptures. I'm the good one. I'm the good God. It was back in a time when people believed in lots of different gods. There were lots of options for people of worship and and, 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 and beliefs. And, and, and God was always the one going, I'm the good one. I'm the right one. I'm the good one. It's it's almost sad that God, speaking to his creation, has to convince his creation of his goodness. But that is the condition of the creation. We are broken People and we have been lied to again and again by, 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 uh, by Satan, and, and his, his scheme to undermine our trust in God has been extremely effective to the point to where God has to go out of his way to convince us that he's our good, that he's a good God, that he's the good guy. But you know, one of the ways that this can really get tested is when it comes to family. I, I have a son who I love dearly, but you know, my son is, has decided to, uh, uh, for now, uh, you know live his own life. He wants to make his own choices and, and so he's he's walked away from the faith and I got to tell you everything in me wants to be with him and wants to connect to him. And we love him and we have a great relationship. I'm not I'm not saying anything that, but I'm not going to let his decision change my confidence in the word of God. And in the teachings of Jesus Christ and in my belief that Jesus is the good God. And so I constantly say to my son, "Hey, you know, really think about what you're doing. I think you're making the wrong choices. He's an adult now. He's got to make his own choices." But you really got to think this out because Jesus is the good guy. Don't listen to the the world. Don't listen to the the voice of Satan. Don't listen to the voice of other people out there. Jesus is the good guy. And that's what I feel like I'm saying to him all the time. And I have confidence in God that one day he'll hear it. One day he'll turn himself in and and he'll see it for himself. And we all kind of, you know, because I know, because I had to, it's what I went through. And we all probably have gone through that, every one of us in this room have gone through that. We've, we've started out somewhere, we found ourselves way off the beaten path, way off the track, and then we've turned and, fed, and thought to ourselves, you know, God isn't so bad after all, and we come back, and I believe that's what he's going to do. But I also have another friend. I also have a friend that I grew up with who I love dearly, and they have a child, an adult child like mine, who's made a lifestyle choice that is, uh, in my opinion, extremely destructive, and it's, and it's ungodly, it's unrighteous. And, and early on, my friend kept challenging their child, hey, repent, don't go down this road, this is the wrong road. And they, and they battled with them for several months until the point to where my friend lost her trust. And now she's decided to accept the lifestyle of her child, a very destructive and, and ungodly one. And, and so now she's, she's gone from trying to call her out of that, that bad lifestyle, that, 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 that uh, destructive lifestyle, to now accepting that destructive lifestyle and even promoting it. And this is exactly, I think, the point Jesus is making here. We cannot let the love of our family change or affect our trust in the goodness of Jesus and in the rightness of his teachings. This is a hard lesson, but this lesson will make all the difference. You know, this is how trusting Jesus is how the, the, the early apostles went all over the world and changed the world, and it will work today. We have to trust in God, and we have to trust that God is a good God, and we have to share that message to the world around us, and it will eventually bear fruit. It will eventually pay off. But we can't let ourselves doubt. We can't let ourselves fa- fault, falter. We can't let ourselves fail or fall, even for a minute. You know, a Simi Church, one of the mottos that I have that I really hope as a church we can, we can make one of our mottos, something near and dear to my heart, and that is we want to take God at His word. I love that motto because it's so simple and it's so trusting. I'm not talking about a blind trust, a blind faith based on nothing. I'm talking about a reasoned trust, a, a logical, a second level reasoning type of trust, one that has thought through the options, one that has examined the evidence and come to the conclusion that God's word can be fully trusted and therefore we can take him at his word. What a great way, what a, what a great thing that would be if that's what was said about us in See me Church. If that was said about you as, as, a, as, a, as a believer or me as a believer, he took God his word that's something I'd be proud of that's something I'd love to have written on my tombstone but we've got to trust him we've got to have that kind of confidence in him even above love for our own families you know unlike the nun in my little story at the beginning Jesus intentions were good He can be trusted. This is a non-negotiable, and this will change lives. Anything less borders on blasphemy. Let's be people who take Jesus at his word. We'll stand. We'll close with a final song. Thank you very much.